Good morning, church. Our reading this morning is from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Now it will come about in the last days, the, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he might teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his ways. That he may, excuse me, for the, <laughs> for the will to go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Shannon, thank you so much. A couple things I wanna mention before we, we go on to the sermon today. First. Um, prayer opportunities. I was invited to go to Rwanda um, under the auspices of World Relief. And as you know, our church has been supporting ministries in Uganda, which is right next to Rwanda. We often fly through Rwanda to get there. But the purpose of the trip is for me to see about us partnering perhaps with a ministry that educates leaders in East Africa. And as you know, we've been doing that already ourselves, and they're just looking at a way that maybe we can partner with them and ask me to go. So I'll be leaving in mid-October. I'm not leaving immediately, but I just wanted you to know if something, you could be praying about that trip, that I'll be going to Rwanda, and they are sponsoring half of my trip because they want me to go. So I'm grateful for that, but would appreciate your prayers. So if you wonder, where's Pastor Bray's in? Where? Why? Well, I've been invited to go there and see about maybe partnering with them. Would you pray with me now? Lord, we are grateful that we have a God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. You are returning for us to reign with us, and you offer us the opportunity to reign with you forever in a perfect world, and we are so grateful. We thank you that you've been revealing yourself to us in these messages in the book of Revelation. And Lord, we want to know you better. We want to know more about you. We want to know more about the plan that you've revealed to us. We want to understand it. And we pray now that today your Holy Spirit would speak to us and that he'd speak through me words that honor Christ and are accurate to the word of God. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been studying in the book of Revelation, and as we continue today, we continue to have Jesus Christ revealed. And last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. It's the second coming. And you might wonder, well, what's going to happen when he comes back? And it seems like we ought to know that. Uh, we are his followers. It'd be really good if we know what we're following and what we're going to be in for when Jesus Christ returns. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. You're probably familiar with the word utopia. You think of utopia as a wonderful, beautiful, perfect place. And I looked up the definition of utopia, and here's one definition. It's an imagined place or state of things in which everything is perfect. Now, I like the last half of that. It's a state or place of things in which everything is perfect, but they say it's imagined. 
But when Jesus comes back, he's going to create a world that is perfect. The word utopia originated in 1516. In 1516, there was a man by the name of Sir Thomas More who was a novelist, and he decided he would write a novel about a fictitious place that was ideal. And this fictitious place was a fictitious island off the coast of South America where it was ideal and they had an ideal government, and he decided he would call it utopia. And he got the word utopia, he invented it. He took two Greek words and put them together to mean a place that is perfect and idyllic, and utopia was born. But Thomas More was English, not Greek. And he made a huge linguistic boo-boo when he came up with the word utopia. You see, there are two Greek words, and to the non-Greek speaker, you might get them confused. And one word, utopia, is quite different than the other word, utopia. And I didn't realize this until on a trip to Greece once, I happened to run across a copy of Thomas More's book, Utopia, in Greek. And I saw the title, and I gasped. I go, that's what he meant? He had written the Greek word, which means no place, when he meant to write the word that meant good place. And so, instead of saying this is a good place to be, there's no place like this. Well, obviously, I wasn't the first person to discover Thomas More's mistake. In fact, it was pointed out to him. So, he had to add an addendum to his book. And in the addendum, he said, I meant the Greek word utopia that means a place of felicity, not the Greek word utopia that means no place. Now, this little digression into English literature and etymology and the importance of being able to speak Greek properly, I'm not telling you just because it's fascinating in itself, at least fascinating to me. I'm telling you because it's relevant to what we're going to look at today in Revelation 20, the subject of the millennium. And you go, millennium? Yeah, millennium. Chapter 20. It's something that is mentioned six times in chapter 20. Now, millennium is Latin for 1,000 years, and when the Bible was written in Latin, they used the word millennium. So this 1,000-year period is often called the millennium, but it just means 1,000 years. And that's what we have written in our English Bible six times in chapter 20. And I want you to understand that this is an important subject, and depending on what kind of church you grew up in, you might have not heard about it, or you heard about it a different way. And after the Saturday service, I had one man come out and goes, oh yeah, this is all the stuff I studied in my church as I was growing up. It's very familiar. I had another man come out like, well, I've never heard any of this before in my church. And those are the two views on the millennium. Some people say it's a good place, and other people, eh, it's a no place. <laughs> you know, they don't study it. And so if you look at your notes, I want to establish this at the beginning so you understand. Uh, number one on your notes, the first thing that's listed there, the doctrine of what's called premillennialism as held by the Christian and Missionary Alliance, that's our denomination, this is what we believe as a denomination, teaches that Christ returns and sets up a literal kingdom for 1,000 years here on earth a literal kingdom for 1,000 years here on earth. 
And Josh, if we could have the timeline, and we'll just leave it up there for those of you who might not be familiar with this timeline. Like I said, some people go, oh yeah, that's a timeline I saw growing up. And other people go, please leave it up there. I've never seen that before. And that's not uncommon. And so just to review the timeline, we have the death of Christ on the cross. We have he's buried in the tomb. And then he's resurrected and he ascends to heaven. That's the arrow. And then he sent the Holy Spirit, and the church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. And that's the era we live in. We are the church, also called Christ's bride. And he tells us he's going to come back for his bride, and he takes us up into heaven at what's called the rapture. That also is Latin for the Greek word harpazo, from which you get the word harpoon, which means caught up. And so we're going to be caught up to be with Jesus, the scriptures say. And while we're in heaven with the groom down on earth is what's called the tribulation. And in the Old Testament, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble because it's mostly about Jacob or Israel. And the purpose of the tribulation, God pours out his wrath to get Israel's attention so they'll repent and call Jesus back, as it says in Hosea 5.15 and numerous other passages in the Bible. In fact, Jesus said that himself in Matthew 23. And so the tribulation period, when it ends, when the Jews repent of rejecting Jesus and call him back, he returns, and that's what we call the second coming, and we talked about that last week. But what happens when he gets back? Well, the Bible talks about this period of time of 1,000 years where the earth is better but not yet perfect. It'll be perfect. He reigns forever, and eventually the earth gets a total redo, But during the millennium, the earth is better, but it's not perfect. But it's a much better place. It's literal. It's a thousand years on earth. And this was the belief of our founder, A.B. Simpson. He believed this. This is a basic tenet of the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. So I just want you to know this isn't something that I just came up this this week while I was studying going, hey, let me come up with this. Um, This is part of our denomination. So if you look at chapter 20, verse 4 with me, this is one place where it's talked about. In Revelation 20, verse 4, John has a vision, and he says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. So these are people that are reigning with Jesus Christ during the millennium. He doesn't tell us exactly who these people are, but they might include the apostles, might include us. We're not really sure who they all are. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And we were told in the Bible that you and I are going to judge angels, and we're going to be judges, so we could be on these thrones, but he doesn't say specifically right here who it is. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. It's interesting, when I read this verse as a child, I couldn't imagine anybody being beheaded, and you're thinking this is kind of like old-time stuff. And now, boy, has the world changed. That when you stand up for Jesus now in many parts of the world, you get beheaded. And these people are people that come to know Christ during the tribulation period, and they get beheaded for putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. That's how we know they came out of the tribulation. And had not received the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand. So these are tribulation saints who rejected the Antichrist, and it says, and they came to life. They were resurrected when Jesus came back at the second coming. They came to life, they're resurrected, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And we know that Jesus comes down to earth. We saw that already. So here we're on earth. They're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And in chapter 20, 
John uses specifically the words 1,000 years six different times. Now, if he said it once, that would be enough, but he says it six times. So how long is 1,000 years? It's 1,000 years. And what's interesting is in the book of Revelation, we have images of horns and, and heads and beasts, and those are images that have to be interpreted. 1,000 years doesn't have to be interpreted. It's not an image. It's not a metaphor. It's very specific. It's not a symbol. He tells us it's a 1,000 years. And for the first 300 years of the church, they understood this. They understood that a 1,000 years equals a 1,000 years, that this is a literal reign of Christ on earth. In fact, in the early church, if you didn't believe this, you were considered a heretic. Justin Martyr, who lived in the second century, was martyred for his faith. He was a Christian apologist, and that's why he's called Justin Martyr, because he was killed for his faith. Listen to what he wrote. This is the second century. He's writing about the millennium, and he says, it is to be thoroughly proved that it, the millennium in other words, will come to pass. But many, even those of the race of Christians who follow not godly and pure doctrine, do not acknowledge it. These, and listen to what he describes of people who don't believe in the millennium, are indeed called Christians, but are atheists and impious heretics. So in the early church, you were considered a heretic if you didn't believe Christ came back and spent a thousand years reigning on earth. And other people that believe this, besides Justin Martyr, here's some famous names you might know, Bishop Papias, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Barnabas, Hermas, Polycarp, Ignatius, just to mention a handful of them. They believed in a literal reign of Christ on earth. So why do we have some people today that say there is no literal reign, there is no millennium? It can be traced historically all the way back to the fourth century, a man who became one of the greatest theologians or best-known theologians of the church. His name, Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it. He's often called Saint Augustine. And St. Augustine believed in a literal millennial of reign of Christ on earth early in life, but late in life he changed his mind. And he started following the allegorical interpretation of Scripture that came from the Greek Platonist philosophers. They were pagans, and they started using allegory to try to get the Old Testament to agree with their pagan religion. And Augustine applied the allegorical method to the book of Revelation, and he said, the kingdom of Christ on earth, it's not a literal kingdom. The kingdom, he said, is now. And he said the kingdom is in the church. The church is the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And he said Christ is reigning now. It's not a future reign. It's now. It's a spiritual reign. It's in the church now. And we're part of the kingdom now. And so this view of no thousand years, no millennium, is called ah, which is also a Greek word for no, ah, millennium, no literal thousand years. So good place became no place. And Augustine's view then became very popular in the Roman church. And if you know your church history, the Greek Orthodox and the Roman church had a split. So his view was in the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Church. And then, if you know your church history, there are some Catholics who split from the Roman Catholic Church. They were called protesters or Protestants. 
and they protested against some of the doctrines of the Catholic Church, and they started the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, but they held on to Augustine's view of no millennium, of no place. And so a large segment, the largest segment of the Christian church follows Augustine and says the millennium is not a literal thousand years. It's an indefinite period of time, and the kingdom is spiritual, and it is now, and Christ is reigning now. And that's church tradition. But what do the scriptures say? Because the scriptures always trump tradition. And the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, reveal, and this is the second thing that's listed, the second bullet point on your outline, Christ's kingdom on earth is a good place, not a no place. It's a good place, not a no place. Former Dallas Seminary professor Dr. Dwight Pentecost arguably wrote the most comprehensive work on eschatology, the study of last things. It's a 600-page tome called... Uh, things to come. And Dr. Pentecost writes this. He states, there are more verses on the millennium in the Bible than any other period of time. Because sometimes you'll hear people say a statement and then they quote other, it's a wrong statement, but it gets quoted so many times you might think it's true. They say the only place the millennium is mentioned is Revelation 20. That's not true. Revelation 20 is the only place that we're told it's a thousand years but the event is talked about in hundreds of scriptures through the Bible. And we are going to stay here until we look up every single one of them today. <laughs> now, if you look at your outline, you notice I had like all these points, and there's 10 of them. And I realized as I was writing the sermon, and like I spent an extra day, and then an extra day, and I'm right. I go, well, I can't preach all that. So a sermon, one sermon on the millennium is probably going to take a thousand years now to get through because um, we're going to cover all those points, but not today. So you can go, whew, we're only going to cover one, number one. So it's kind of a weird numbering system here. We have the third thing on your outline is Christ's earthly kingdom is characterized by number one. Here it is, peace on earth. When he comes back, when Christ comes back to reign, what can you expect? Well, we're going to look at least 10 things, and it might grow as I study. So don't say, you said 10, and now there's 20. Well, there might be 20, but I know today we're going to only talk about one. There's going to be peace on earth. And there's a passage about the millennium in the Old Testament that you know, but you may not have known it was about the millennium. And you've read it every year, perhaps, at Christmas time. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Turn there and follow along with me. It says in Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born. Now, this is talking about Jesus, and it's written 700 years before he was born. It's prophesied a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. So we know it's a male child, and now we're going to learn something more about him. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So we know this is talking about Jesus because the only God who was born was Jesus because he was born as a man. He's always existed as God, but as a man, he had to be born. He's 100% man, 100% God. So this is Jesus. The government's going to rest on his shoulders. But that didn't happen at his first coming. The only thing that rested on his shoulders in the first coming was a cross. 
not a government. So yes, he was born at the first coming, but the prediction of the government being on his shoulders is at his second coming. And notice what it says, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or a peace. It will be a peaceful government. And on the throne of David, that's very important. We'll get back to that in a moment. But he'll be on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So he will be reigning over the Jewish people, it says. And obviously that's not happening now. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And so Christ's kingdom, and this is important to understand, we'll get more into it later in another sermon, but he comes back and sets up his kingdom for a thousand years on earth, on a much improved earth, but it's not yet perfect. And after those thousand years, he will set up his kingdom on a totally remade heaven and earth, and his kingdom is forever. So his kingdom is both future on this earth, not quite perfect, but it's also an eternal kingdom after the end of these thousand years millennium. And you're going, well, why does he have to come down and reign a thousand years on earth on an improved earth and not completely renewed earth? I'll tell you why in another sermon. Because I don't have time for everything today. We just want to talk about peace on earth. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 7.16. We just read about him being on the throne of David. Well, that was talked about to David himself, David, King David of Israel, in 2 Samuel 7.16, was given a promise by God. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And God always keeps his promises. And in the Davidic covenant, King David, the Jewish king, was promised some things that have not yet been fulfilled. It says in 2 Samuel 7, 16, speaking to David, and your house. House means his physical lineage. It means someone who comes from your loins, one of your relatives. Well, that's why it's important that Jesus comes from the line of David. That's why in Matthew 1, they make a point to say that he comes from Abraham, he's Jewish, but he's not just any Jew, he comes from the line of King David that gives him the right to rule. Unless you come from King David, you have no right to rule Israel. Because it was to David, he's told it's your house and your kingdom. Kingdom is the realm where you rule, shall endure before me forever. So David has said, your kingdom's forever. Well, does Israel have a king now and a kingdom? No. It doesn't say there won't be a hiatus. It doesn't say there won't be a break, but it says it's a forever kingdom. So it has to come back and it has to be forever. And the only one who can make a forever promise is an eternal God. You have to be able to live forever to make a forever promise. And so this is God's promise. And notice what he says next. He's promised a house, a kingdom, it's forever, and he says, your throne. The throne is the right to rule. You have the right to rule. It's the person who comes from King David who has the right to rule, and that's Jesus. Well, how do I know? Because of another Christmas passage that you read every year at Christmas, and you may not have realized it's about the millennium. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Actually, we'll pick it up in verse 31. Luke 1.31, Mary, Jesus' mother, is going to be pregnant with the Messiah, with Jesus. And the angel comes to her and says this in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So it's very clear we're talking about Jesus. He will be great, 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And notice, the Lord will give him the, what's the next word? Throne of his father David. This is the Davidic covenant that was promised to David that's being fulfilled in Jesus that he sits on the Jewish throne. He rules over Israel. And notice verse 32. And he will reign over the house, there's our word house again, of Jacob forever. That's our word forever again that was in the covenant. And his kingdom, there's a word kingdom again that was in the Davidic covenant. His kingdom, his realm will have no end. Christ's earthly kingdom is characterized by peace on earth, and it is a promise that was first made to King David, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He has a house, a kingdom, a throne, and he has it forever, and it will be peace on earth, and there'll be no more wars. And do you know why there will be no wars during the millennium? I'll tell you in a minute. First, a fun digression. In the mid-1960s, there was a peace movement. It started in Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco area, and also about the same time it started in New York City. It spread around the world. We call it the hippie movement, and it was a movement seeking peace and love, and those are good things. They sought it in the wrong way, but they were seeking the right thing. They were anti the Vietnam War. They had a symbol, the peace symbol. That's that circle with what looks like a dove's footprint in the middle, and some people say that's what it is, it's a dove's footprint in the middle. Well, that's not what it is. I don't know if you know the origin of the peace symbol, but it started before the hippie movement. It was started in 1958. It was an artist's rendition. He came up with it, and there was going to be a nuclear um, protest against nuclear armament of about 50-something people. It wasn't a big protest. And so he came up with a symbol, and the symbol represents the letter N for nuclear, and the letter D for disarmament. And it's in the semaphore flag language, if you know what that is, where the letter N, you hold two flags if you want a symbol between ship and ship or wherever at a distance. You hold two flags kind of down like this at 45-degree angles with both arms, two flags. And then when you want to do the letter D, you have two flags, one up and one down. And so you put one up, one down, and two like this, and it makes the peace symbol. And so the peace symbol were the letters N and D standing for nuclear disarmament. Now, I don't know if the hippies knew all that. They just said peace, and then they held up two fingers like this. Now, I'm old enough to remember the hippie movement. I'm too young to be involved in parts of it. But I was able to wear bell-bottoms, go barefoot, have a really wide belt, and say peace, and my hair actually started to touch the top of my ears <laughs> to my military father's chagrin. I was too young for the other things, and I'm glad that I was. But one of the things that grew out of the hippie movement shortly after it got started was another movement. It was the Jesus movement. Hippies were discovering that sex, drugs, and rock and roll were not bringing them true peace. And they came to Jesus Christ. It was a movement. And they started coming to know Jesus Christ as the true giver of peace. And that movement started moving throughout the United States of America. Again, it started in California. And they needed a place to go to church, and traditional churches did not want long-haired men with beards, with ripped jeans, barefoot, 
sitting on the floor in their church. So there was a man, Chuck Smith. He invited them into his churches. The Calvary, Ch- the Calvary Chapel movement was spawned. The Calvary Chapel started spreading all over the world. Some of the uh, distinguishing marks of this movement were the hippies said, we want to get back to the Scriptures. We want to study the Scriptures, the Bible, not tradition. We're tired of all that. You know, there's like, you know, question authority and all that. So they wanted the Scriptures. So Calvary Chapel, if you know it, they go through the Scriptures, basically reading and explaining verse by verse through the Bible and going through the Scriptures. The other thing about this Jesus movement is because they were reading the Scriptures, they started believing in a literal millennium again. A literal place on earth with a thousand years of peace. And that's why you go to any Calvary chapel and they'll be talking about the book of Revelation and eschatology and their pre-trib and their, their pre-millennial and they believe in a literal thousand years millennium. It came out of the Jesus movement. And the other thing that came out of the Jesus movement were guitars and drums in church. And a hippie's dream of no war and peace on earth will come true during the millennium. And they believe that, and I believe it. Why? Well, John tells us why in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, while there'll be no war, why there will be peace on earth for a thousand years when Christ reigns. Because Satan will be bound, and he is the instigator of all wars. Chapter 20, verse 1, John sees an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss. The abyss is a place where God locks away demons that are just so bad that they're just locked away until the judgment. And a great chain is in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon. And you go, well, that's metaphorical. Who is that? Well, it's the serpent of old. Well, that's metaphorical. Who is it? It's the devil (laughs) and Satan. He goes, okay, if you don't get it yet, I'll just tell you who it is. And he's bound him for how long? Not an indefinite period of time, exactly a thousand years, exactly the same time as Christ's kingdom. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so he could not deceive the nations. So he could not do what? Deceive the nations. He's the one that leads the nations to war. He can't do it during the millennium. He can't deceive them any longer until what? The thousand years were completed. Now, at the end of 1,000 years, he's going to be released for a short time. Why does he get released? I can't tell you in this sermon. I have to wait to another one because that's not the point of this sermon, but we'll get to that. Well, these three verses are an insurmountable problem for those who don't believe in a literal millennium because if the millennium is spiritual and it's now, then this means Satan is bound now. And that's what they teach. And in what way is Satan bound now? Do you feel like he's bound? Well, Peter didn't think so. Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 5.8, Be on your alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's not very bound. Annas, Nias, and Sapphira were struck dead because the devil had inspired them to lie to the Holy Spirit about their financial situation. Wow, that's not very bound. When Peter told Jesus, no, you don't want to get, you don't want to die and be crucified and resurrect. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. 
Satan was influencing Peter. He's not bound. Satan will be bound for a literal thousand years during the millennium. And it's difficult to come up with any realistic scenario where Satan is currently bound today. Dr. John Walvoord was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for 34 years, served there for about 50 years. He authored 30 books, primarily on eschatology and theology, the study of last things. He is perhaps the world's foremost interpreter of biblical prophecy. Here's what he says. And it's a long quote, but please listen. There is no good reason for taking the 1,000 years in other than a literal sense. The expositor is not free to spiritualize the interpretation of the vision, but must accept the interpretation in its ordinary and literal meaning. If this is done, there is no other alternative than the pre-millennial interpretation which holds that at the second coming, now listen to this phrase, at the second coming of Christ, Satan will be bound for 1,000 years. This will constitute one of the major features of Christ's righteous rule upon the earth and in fact will make possible the peace and tranquility and absence of spiritual warfare predicted for the millennial kingdom. The reason there's peace is Satan is bound. And one of the reasons for the millennium, which isn't in the notes, but I'll give it to you free, is to show the world what it's like when Satan rules and what it's like when Jesus rules. There's a big difference. It's the same earth, but when Jesus rules, there's peace on this earth. And when the devil rules, all hell breaks loose. And that's one of the purposes of the millennium is to show that Jesus has the right to rule and he shows us what happens when he's ruling. There will be peace on earth. There will be utopia, a good place. And this is predicted in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, the passage that was read earlier. Again, this millennial period is talked about throughout the Old Testament, and Isaiah says in chapter 2, verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And mountains in Scripture often represent the place, the central place of rulership or of a kingdom. So his kingdom will be the chief of the kingdoms. It will be raised up above the hills. It could be a literal mountain that's higher than everything else. And all the nations will stream to it. There'll still be nations. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Again, Jacob means Israel. So we see here that it's about Israel still in the future, in the last days. That he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Now listen, for the Lord will go forth from Zion. Where's Zion? Well, in case you don't know, he tells you in the next verse. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, Zion, is the center of the world during the millennial kingdom. All the nations come to Jesus where he's reigning to get the law. And he, Jesus, will judge between the nations. And we learn in other scriptures, he judges with a rod of iron, fast and quick and harsh and will render decisions for many people. And notice the last phrase. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will learn war. Well, that can't be the eternal state, 
because no one brings weapons of war into the eternal state. This is this earth with weapons of war still here, and Jesus shows up and does a remake and makes the world better, but it's not yet perfect. It's the millennial period, and there's peace. And Isaiah tells us that's the characteristic of his kingdom. I looked up some statistics, and the latest statistics I could find says currently there are about 40 wars going on right now in the world, 40 of them. It's estimated that during the 20th century, more than 160 million people, 160 million people were killed in wars. In World War II, the most costly war in terms of lives in the history of mankind, it's estimated that 70 million people died in World War II. In World War I, 20 million people killed. And then... There are the mass murderers of the world. Hard to know who gets number one, whether it's Stalin or Mao Zedong, because we don't really have accurate figures, but it's estimated that Mao Zedong, through his so-called Great Leap Forward, caused the death of over 45 million Chinese people. What kind of ruler is that? He's demonic, satanic. There's Joseph Stalin. Again, we're not really sure about the numbers, but the numbers could be between 40 to 60 million people in the Soviet Union, died because of his policies. But during the millennium, Satan's wicked politicians and kings and generals and presidents and prime ministers and and mayors and governors are no more. It is a righteous government with Jesus in charge with a rod of iron. No more fighting, no more wars, no more ethnic cleansings. We've been hearing about the Armenian ethnic cleansing in World War I. It's back in the news. Turkey tries to deny it. But in World War I, the Ottoman Turks killed upwards of 1.5 million Armenian Christians. In World War II, a madman by the name of Adolf Hitler had one-third of the entire world's population of Jews exterminated. Saddam Hussein gassed over 183,000 of his own Iraqi people because they were Kurds. And I first knew about it when one of those Kurds came to my church in Athens, Greece. and showed me a picture he'd drawn of his fellow Kurds that had been gassed, women, children, dads. None of that is going to happen in the millennium. It's peace on earth. No landmines that kill or maim an estimated 15 to 20,000 people a year. No more need for military buildups and budgets. In 2019, our country, United States of America, who spends more on defense than any other country in the world, our budget is seven, nearly $700 billion, our defense budget. Imagine all the nations of the world using that money to create, to do good, to help, to bless. Closer to home. No more long deployments. No more when's daddy coming home? When's mommy coming home? Now, I had nine other things I wanted to tell you, but obviously I can't do it today. But I want you to remember one thing. It's peace on earth, and it is a 
good place, not a no place, and I can attest to that because I can read and speak Greek. (laughs) Praise the Lord. All hail King Jesus. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your head so you can have a private moment. Close your eyes if you want. Do you want to reign with Christ? He invites you to reign with Him forever, first in the millennium and then in the eternal state. Do you want that? He offers it to you, but you have to accept it. And you accept it by recognizing He died for your sins on the cross. He rose from the grave. He conquered death. And He's offering you forgiveness of sin and salvation if you accept Him into your life as your Savior. If that's what you want, cry out to Him. He knows your heart. Just say, Lord, save me, and He will. Lord Jesus, it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. Thank you for what's in store. We love you, Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless you, keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you soon.